Okay, we're rolling. Um, let's stand and say the Shema again. Um, you know, we say this to rededicate our hearts to God so that we can listen to His words in Scripture and gain new wisdom and energy for life. Let's say this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Alright, you can sit down. Um, okay, again, places in Israel. Here is the place of Israel. And last week, today, and then next week, which next week is the last week, we're kind of tracing a lot of the last few days of Jesus' life. So, this is some of what the pathway looks like. He came through Jericho, this is where Zacchaeus was, and he comes down the Jericho Road. Um, into Bethany for a time and then Bethphage to the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So again, moving east, eastbound. And one thing we hit on last week that I wanted to visit again this week is the Messiah entering from the east and the importance of coming into Jerusalem from the east. This probably won't like totally change your life and your habits this week, but I think it is a fascinating thing, a recurring theme in the Bible of the East. So again, the West, again for the, for the Jewish mind in this time, the West is the direction of chaos because water represents chaos. Even the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee would have said, you know, this water has this representation of chaos. Based from Genesis 1, at the very beginning, remember, the world is covered in, in water. Nothing fits, nothing makes sense. The Spirit hovers over the water. So that's considered the state of chaos. And yet the Spirit of God is present amidst our darkness and chaos. So, that's the direction of the West. There's this continuous theme of coming from the east. If you remember when Israel comes into the promised land, they kind of go around, let's look at them, they kind of, in a sense, come around and come through the east across the Jordan River. In the first place they take over and destroy is Jericho. So they come um, into the promised land from the east with Joshua. Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, the prophet Ezekiel has these visions of the glory of God, the Shekinah, the presence of God, leaves the temple towards the east. And there's this hope that God will come back from the east into the temple, which is something we'll look at today, coming from the east back to the temple. So, I won't go too deep into this, it's just that if you want kind of a reference point, read Ezekiel 10 and 11, this vision that the prophet has. In Matthew, there's this, um, the account of Jesus' birth story is that his birth is announced in the East. Also, um, these are somewhat connected here and it's also referenced in today's sermon that Jesus goes towards the east to the Mount of Olives where He ascends into heaven. And the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem a little bit, the city. 
And the Mount of Olives also represents the day and the place of the Lord's coming back in Zechariah chapter 14. Again, so I won't go deep into this except that if you want a reference point here, um, Zechariah 14 is a very gives you a very interesting view on Acts chapter 1 in today's, in today's sermon um, that Josh gives. Another interesting point that I thought of because I'm, I'm doing um, kind of a Torah study project with a friend of mine in Atlanta. So what we're doing is um, trying to read eight chapters a week of the Torah. We started this at the beginning of the year. We just finished reading through it the first time. So finished Deuteronomy. This week started back at the beginning of Genesis. And on this theme, it caught my eye that, if you remember, Adam and Eve have to leave the Garden of Eden after their sin. And do you remember which cardinal direction God puts the angel so that they couldn't come back into the garden? Puts the angel in the east, on the east side of the garden. So I think that also fits the theme of the importance of God returning from the east. Okay, we're going to look at a few places today and compare Herod and Jesus. So Herod's this incredible builder. And if you get the chance to go to Israel or if you've been there, you'll notice there's tons of massive, incredible constructions by Herod. And, you, and it's kind of stunning. You think, how could anyone do this? It would be a big project to do it now, but to do it then at that time with that technology is totally impressive and these are some of the, the big projects that he built. Masada, this massive fortress um, on, on a cliff and it overlooks the Dead Sea. You can kind of see the Dead Sea over there so it's on the south side a little uh, south of Jericho. This massive fortress that Herod built uh, which again, this is not really too, well, Israel's so small, nothing's too far from anything. But this really isn't very far from Jerusalem. A lot of history here. I think this is the most visited historical site maybe in Israel. And it is really cool. What you see here, this big hill and road up to Masada, if I remember correctly, that this goes all the way up to the fortress way up here. I mean, it is... It is really on the face of a cliff. Some Jews, this was after Jesus' time by 20 or 30 years. Some Jews were holding out at the top of this fortress. They had taken it over. And the Romans wanted to take it back. The only way they could get up there to them was to actually build their own road up to the top to get to them. And by the time the Roman armies had got up there, this group of Jews, every, they had killed themselves because they didn't want to be slaves to Rome. They weren't going to give in. So this is kind of post-biblical history. Josephus, again a historian that we've hit on a few times, writes about this story. Again, you can Wikipedia this more if you, if you want more about it. So Masada, fascinating place. Jericho, we've talked about Jericho. Herod had a lot of construction projects in Jericho. Caesarea, this is on, on the Mediterranean Sea, on the west side of Israel. This is what it 
uh, probably looked like or close to when it was in all of its glory. And here's the amphitheater now. I don't think they had the speaker systems back then. That's not ancient. Um, but that's, that's, that amphitheater is like this right here. Really, really neat place and very impressive, again, building and technology for that time. And then we're going to hit on, on the temple in a minute. So if you remember last week, we discussed how the gospel writers present Jesus last week as the Passover. He comes in for the Passover meal. What we call Palm Sunday would have been the tenth day of the first month. For context on the Passover meal, Exodus 12 is again where this is first introduced. With the Passover meal, on the tenth day of the first month, you select the lamb. And you keep that lamb for a few days until basically Thursday of that week and kill the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and everybody eats the lamb for the Passover meal. And again, this is based on the original Passover meal in Egypt. Now, in Jesus' day, how did this work? Well, the Sadducees again controlled the temple. And they had all the sheep there. So you could have brought your own lamb from wherever you were coming from in Israel to use for Passover. But the problem is you had to go to the temple to get your lamb inspected to make sure there were no blemishes, that there was nothing wrong with it, that it was pure and that it was clean. And what the Sadducees were likely going to do was going to look at, they were going to look at your lamb and go, ah, there's a spot here, that's not good, you're going to have to buy one from us. And the Sadducees likely sourced all of these lambs from the nearby town of Bethlehem, which uh, wasn't, wasn't far away again. Now, think about Jesus. He comes into the city on Lamb Selection Day. He comes into the city of Jerusalem. And there's kind of this idea that Jesus is saying, Pick me. I am your Lamb. I am enough. I will cover your sin. I will protect you from death. But what has to happen next according to the process? He has to go to the temple, right? You remember this? He goes into the temple and he has this confrontation. If you look in Matthew 22, I think, I think Luke, I can't remember the chapters, and in Mark, he's presented as having these conversations with different groups of Jews. Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And it says they all tested him and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day on did anyone question him. In a sense, Jesus, the Lamb from Bethlehem, goes to the temple and He's tested and there's nothing wrong with Him. He is a perfect Lamb. Even, even the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, they all inspected Him. No one could find anything wrong with Him. Jesus is the perfect Lamb and it's proved again that He is clean and has no blemishes. And I think this is a fascinating context to look at the story of Jesus. Because if you don't think in Passover terms, you're going you're gonna to miss some very interesting things that are going on in the story. Now, Herod, an amazing builder, right? 
Jesus also is a builder. When they get to Jerusalem, you know, the disciples look at this massive temple that Herod built. Herod rebuilt the temple of Solomon. And they say to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So, Herod really was a phenomenal builder as we've seen a few pictures. He was a horrible ruler. He was actually a very horrible, probably mentally unstable person. And we, again, our Bibles a lot of times say Jesus was a carpenter. The Greek word is tekton. Tekton is a craftsman, a master craftsman, someone who builds and likely works with stone because in Israel there's not a lot of wood to work with. Herod builds these massive uh, buildings out of stone, not wood. So if Jesus was a tecton, he likely grew up, like his father, more as a stonemason or a builder, not working with wood. He was working with stone. And in John chapter 2, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It's taken 46 years to build the temple. It shows you how incredible this building and this project was. 46 years. But the temple that Jesus spoke of was His body. After He was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what He had said. Then they believed the Scripture in the words that Jesus had spoken. I want to think for a minute, we're going to look at this, about this, this line right here. They believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Devoted Jews, especially in that time, and, and probably today, their first thought as they're listening to any rabbi teach is helping us understand the words that God has already given us. So Jesus is, is He saying new things some of the time, but a lot of the time He's saying, look at the Scripture. Look at the, what we would call the Old Testament. It's true. These words are powerful. These words are enough. And so that's what I think that's what I think is this is an interesting line because a lot of times we and I don't know that this is wrong. I just think it's different than what uh, devoted Israelites how they view the world. We think Jesus said it. Jesus did it. That's awesome. That's enough for me. Again, I think that's fine. But if you if we want more wisdom from God then we kind of have to take this view and go, okay, how is Jesus fulfilling the Scriptures? How is Jesus affirming that the words of God are still true? So let's look at, let's look at that for a minute. They believe the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In Zechariah chapter 6, again, the, this prophet says, The word of the Lord came to me, and said, Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua or Yeshua, right? That's Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua, the son of Josedek. Tell him, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with, clothed with majesty and will be a priest on his throne. 
Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. So I think, again, a lot of the people around Jesus, these Jews, would have had these scriptures in their mind, floating around. And they would have been thinking, oh, so Jesus says he's going to rebuild the temple in three days. And, and there's the resurrection. So what is, what is he affirming here that we already know? How does this make sense? They're thinking of Zechariah chapter 6 maybe. Maybe think they're thinking of Malachi chapter 3. I will send my messenger before me who will prepare the way. That's also reference to John the Baptist early in at least one of the Gospels, maybe more. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. But who can endure the day of His coming? I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers who def defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. We've also hit on, I think last week, that the Sadducees were taking money from people. They were greedy. And they were oppressing widows. We talked about this at the end of Luke chapter 20 and the very beginning of Luke chapter 21. Jesus calls out the Sadducees specifically for oppressing the widows. The exact opposite of what clearly what God stands for, what the Torah stands for, and what the temple represents. That the place of God and the community that God set up and wants for us is a place where everybody is taken care of and no one is oppressed. So, let's look at something else real quick comparing Herod and Jesus. Luke chapter 8, there's this interesting bit about some of the women involved in the ministry of Jesus. It says, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, or Cusa, not sure exactly how to say that, the manager of Herod's household and many others. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and the Twelve, by their own means. So it's an interesting twist that Herod, who was an enemy of what God was doing, was helping to fund the work of Jesus. That's a fascinating, that's a fascinating thing and I'm glad Luke tossed that in. That's really interesting. I think it just shows that God can work in ways that you know, we wouldn't expect or that we wouldn't dream up for ourselves. When you go to Israel today, you can see the work of Herod. It's still there, some of these ruins. It's still impressive. But you can see the work of Jesus all over the world. Jesus helped shape people versus Herod who shaped stones. And I don't think in some ways the work is very similar because shaping stones takes a lot of work chipping away pieces, chipping away big pieces of stone so that this piece of stone can look how you want it to look. Jesus, as a stonemason of real stone, also takes the same approach to working with us and working on us. Sometimes it's painful. It's not what we would want. We don't choose a lot of the things that happen to us. And yet Jesus, even through the pain, is shaping us and chipping away the pieces that don't fit so that we can, we can be what He wants us to be. What He wants us to look like. Isaiah chapter 51, I love these verses. It says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. I think this is awesome. We are cut from the same stone as Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Peter and Elijah. We are taken from the same quarry as them. When you read the Bible, and it's easy to be intimidated by some of these people, but the, but the fact is, God's saying, no, 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 you are taken from the same place as them. There is nothing keeping you from having the same power and humility and honesty that Elijah and Moses and Sarah and Ruth and on and on. There's nothing keeping us from being like them. And the, and the goal that Jesus has for us is to slowly shape us to be what He wants us to be. I want to pause there for a second. Any thoughts or questions on what we've done so far? Great. Okay, let's keep going. So, the Temple Mount. This is another massive construction project of Herod. Um, again, what it would, what it maybe looked like in that time. Um, a couple things I would point out before we move to the next, um, the next slide or teachings is the court of the Gentiles. So that's really small font, but the court of the Gentiles right here. Another smaller court right here. Um, Something that was really interesting going on at the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for this Passover meal is that there were so many people coming from all over the country into Jerusalem for the Passover meal. The place was super crowded and packed. And, and there's an indication that Jesus stayed somewhere in the Mount of Olives area like overnight for this time. I mean, people Airbnb'd the place out wherever they could find spots uh, for people to stay. Therefore, there had to be a lot of lambs served, right, from, from the temple for all the guests coming in. And what had happened is the Sadducees, let me see if some of this on the next... Yeah. What had happened was the Sadducees, to make enough space for all the lambs to be served, is they spread, um, in, well, they spread into the court of the Gentiles. That's where they took their market, if you will, into the court of the Gentiles. It wasn't, I think, and the way I've heard scholars talk about it, it wasn't so much wrong that they were selling things, selling lambs in the temple. That wasn't so much the problem. The problem is that the Sadducees had spread their market into the court of the Gentiles, therefore there was less room for Gentiles to come to the temple. So we read it and immediately think, oh, they shouldn't have been selling lambs there. Again, I don't think that may, that may not be totally wrong, but what's the bigger offense is that the Sadducees were pushing out the outsiders 
there was less room for the outsiders. And even the Pharisees were extremely upset about this. And, and most Jews were. Again, the Sadducees were not well-liked well people in general. They shouldn't have been because they weren't likable people. The Pharisees strongly disagreed with the Sadducees stretching into the court of the Gentiles and pushing out the outsiders. So Jesus, remember, he comes in, he drives them out, he turns over the tables or whatever, and he says this line, again quoting from the Hebrew Bible. It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now he's, again, calling out fragments from two different places in the Old Testament. And I'm guessing a lot of your Bibles actually in the margin, if they have references, point to these verses. So let's look at the first, the first one. My house will be called the house of prayer. In Isaiah 56, the Lord says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from His people. To them I will give within my temple a memorial and a name better than my sons and my daughters. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted, for my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Again, they're stretching into the court of the Gentiles, the nations outside of Israel. So Jesus is calling them out for this. That foreigners, even if they're not Jews, if they want to be associated and tied and have an intimate relationship with God, it is our duty to let them in and find ways to let them in, not push them out. The priests aren't fulfilling their duty. He also says, you're making it a den of robbers. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the Lord says, reform your ways and your actions. And I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say. It actually says it three times in, in Jeremiah chapter 7. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, then I will let you live in this place. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? My anger and wrath will be poured out on this place. This is just another data point, if you will, for the Sadducees to not like the work of Jesus. Because Jesus is a threat to their place of power and wealth. And he's saying, look, if you do not reform, if you do not change your ways, you will have the temple taken away from you you will be destroyed. Remember we've already talked about this with Zacchaeus because he references Ezekiel chapter 34. Again, this is another similar type moment where the Sadducees are not necessarily hearing we shouldn't have a market here. The Sadducees are hearing we've got to change our ways because we are oppressing the foreigner. We are stretching into the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, this is not your place. This is a house of prayer for all nations. Let me ask you a question. Okay. I want to make sure I get this. 
It's the sheep that are invading the court of the Gentiles because of all of the crowds, or are they actually having Jews who are wanting to celebrate Passover, which doesn't make sense to me now that I think about it, inside the actual holy temple or the area of the temple? I, so I think what you've got going on, in a sense, is the, the sheep are in pens, right. let's say, and they've got, you know, maybe tables set up with, um, you know, iPads out there to make the, and swipe their card. And they are pushing, in the market space, the, re the shelves are pushing out into the court of the Gentiles so that they can sell all these sheep. And there's not enough space now for the foreigner to come into their place in the temple. So the outsider has a place in the house of God. But the Sadducees are not giving them any room because they want to make more money. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, and I, I think Jesus... That they would want a sheep or are they just wanting to be in the court and they can't go even into the court because of all of those... Both. I, th I think both. Okay. I think that's... I think both things are going on there. Yeah. Okay. And wasn't there also like kind of cheating with the money changers too? I've always heard that Yes, yeah. I yeah, the Sadducees were pretty dishonest through and through. Yes. So they kind of they kind of funneled all commerce through them in a sense as a toll road. Um, yeah, these were not people that you wanted to trust. Yeah. Were sheep all were sheep wasn't always selling You know, there are other parts to the meal for sure. I and I don't know if they all would have been sold through the temple. The sacrificial system did have more animals than sheep, but for Passover, the lamb was the pure unblemished lamb was the focal point. And that's the place that Jesus puts himself in. To answer your question, not totally sure, except that for Passover, sheep would have been the main thing to be selling. I don't know, does anybody have any other knowledge or thoughts on that? A way to answer that question? Uh, uh, the uh, uh, now remember, uh, I guess the city was probably 25, 30,000 when they had Passover. All of a sudden, you have an influx of 100 to 200,000 people up on that little area right there. Yep. If you go over there today, now the uh, the Muslims, when they have Ramadan, they'll be up there. There'll be 250,000 people in that little square right there. Yep. I think, if I remember right, I've heard, and I've, I've not read this myself, I've heard scholars say, Josephus says, it's a big book, so I've not gotten through this whole book yet. And a lot of it's boring. But I think Josephus said 3 million people came through Jerusalem at this time for Passover. Now I've heard some scholars say, that's probably a lot, but even if it's halfway right, this is not a big town, and it would have been mobbed. It would have been a lot of people. Yeah. So we, one of y'all taught last week and said there were 200,000 or 400,000 sheep that were mm -hmm. yeah, sacrificed during this time. So I went back and read. Yeah. And they, first of all, these there were drainage plugs that they had found where the blood, blood would drain. Yeah. But they would actually like 
during this time plug them up because they wanted these people to see these priests soaked in blood all the way up to their waist yep. as a visual. And yeah. then, but they have found these plugs that when, after that was over, they hmm. would plug them and they came down into the Kidron Valley, which there's a lot of symbolism. A lot of symbolism there because John specifically points out Jesus walked. robes would have blood soaked up, yeah. up to their waist. Right. Yeah, it, it was not probably not a pretty sight, but it, yeah, that's right. And it flowed down the Kidron Valley, which is east of the city of Jerusalem. I think I have a map of the city in a second. That's what separates the from Yes, from Jerusalem. And Becky will hit on that more specifically next week, um, I think. Yeah, so this is very hard to see. Again, if you want to come up afterwards and look more closely, this is the Temple Mount right here, and the Kidron Valley is right here, and then the Mount of Olives is over there. And John specifically points out, he walks along the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives to pray, and the Kidron Valley at that time would have been a river of blood. So you think about the Lamb of God walking along this river of blood, right? It's Anyway, there's a lot there. Okay, um, I think this is the last thing we're going to look at. Um, the city of Jerusalem at that time. There is, and they found, I mean, they found this, an Essene gate in the city. Um, you can see it again right here. Maybe you can't see it, but it says it right here. This little quarter of the city for the Essenes. Again, another way to see it over here in the lower part of the city. The Essenes, Jesus says in Luke 22, as you enter the city, a man carrying water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner, um, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. The Essenes, there's so much about the Essenes, and they're not specifically mentioned in the New Testament. However, the more you learn about them, the more you go, these guys are all over the place. Their handprints are all over the New Testament. They saw themselves as the righteous priests. So they looked at the Sadducees controlling the temple and said, they're not a part of the ways of God. They're not doing things the right way. They're not doing things according to the Scripture. So we will go into the wilderness and make straight the way of the Lord. That's how they viewed themselves. They saw themselves as righteous priests. Now, to give a couple indications of where this might lead to, Zechariah, John's father, is mentioned as a righteous priest. Was he an Essene? I don't know. Again, most of the Essenes lived in the wilderness. At the end of Luke chapter 1, it says that John went into the wilderness and grew strong in spirit. So, what's, you know, what's going on here? Was John an Essene? Maybe, maybe so. I would say probably not. But I'm just going to leave that there for a minute. Um, they were totally devoted to the words of God. I mean obsessed. These, these guys had more fire and passion to follow God than anyone else. Josephus says, and I have read this part, that the Essenes took the Sabbath more seriously than anyone else. 
They were so devoted to God and prophecies and understanding it. Josephus also says that they are rarely wrong when they make a prediction. So these guys are a fascinating group of people. Most of them lived uh, in the Judean wilderness, so east of Jerusalem. And Qumran is kind of their area where most of them were, or the most famous one, and the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found there were really the writings of the Essenes. The interesting part is there is an Essene quarter of the city of Jerusalem, which we just looked at. And, most, and, and only men were allowed in this part of the city, not women. And in that day, women were the only ones that carried water. That was the cultural norm. Only women carried water. So Jesus says, as you enter the city, look for a man carrying water. It at least indicates that it would have happened, it may have happened the Last Supper in this little corner of the city, in the Essene area. There's also, I've, I've heard that the Essenes did keep a messianic banquet room in that part of the city prepared for the Messiah coming back. So, again, another indication that maybe the Last Supper was in that um, in, the, in that maybe that messianic banquet room because these, this verse up here in Luke 22 kind of indicates that there was a place that was already ready. Now, I'm not saying that's 100% true, but at least I think you've got some clues here in the scripture that indicate the Last Supper was in the, uh, the Essene quarter. Um, so, I'm going I'm to leave it at that. What other thoughts or questions uh, do you have or what does this make you think about? And I, and I think on that, that like 10 years or so, 20 years before Jesus, I think it was an Essene, came into the temple and cleared it out too. Like did the same thing. Like let the sheep loose, was yelling and shouting. You, you know, very similar to what Jesus did. Yeah, so, so, so historically, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a real challenge to us to say, okay, so how do we accommodate the outsider? And do we, do, are we sque somehow squeezing them out or making it not easy for them to come in uh, in our own church right here? Um, so we got one more week in the class. This is my last week, so uh, Becky's got the grand finale, the uh, Mount of Olives, so don't miss it. Um, 
I've, I've loved it. Um, this has been a fun class and I'm honored that a lot, I've seen a lot of uh, similar faces throughout the last couple of months and I've, I've really loved it. So thank you again. And next week, Becky will close it out. Anything you want to say? See you then. Awesome. You all have a good week. Love you.